0: Thank you, Arlene and Ed, as one. I was hoping that David uh, would step up and announce why you played that song today. Is it today, Marilyn? When was it? On the 28th, it would have been Marilyn and Tom's 65th wedding anniversary. And David played that song today because it was played at their wedding. So. And... Just personally, I think the the rose is still blooming, Marilyn. I'm looking at her right here. In 2015, Kelly Johnson, a nurse who cared for Alzheimer's patients, was also a contestant in that year's Miss America contest. In her talent contest monologue, Johnson spoke about the subtle yet profound ways nurses and patients impact each other's lives. While her fellow nurses praised her monologue, the hosts on one of the most popular talk shows in the country took a decidedly dimmer view of her effort. One host scoffed that Johnson basically read her emails out loud. Another host wondered aloud why Johnson would have a doctor's stethoscope around her neck. Apparently, she was unaware that nurses use stethoscopes too, even female nurses. A backlash ensued against the cattiness of the show's hosts. In response, they gave a shining example of the perfect non-apology. For five minutes, the comments could be boiled down to this. They essentially said to Ms. Johnson, we're sorry you misconstrued our comments. See, a good apology is worth its weight in gold. It gives the brokenness its best chance to heal. The full weight of the offender is taken completely on the offender's shoulders where it belongs. The one that was hurt then can fully assess whether or not they're going to forgive. Anything short of that, and you rob the person who was hurt of the best opportunity to be able to forgive you. We need to apologize and not non-apology. And to say, I'm sorry you misunderstood is not an apology. Why can't we naturally do this? Well, number one, We are never most vulnerable than when we have to apologize. There's nowhere we can go. There's nothing we can do. The hurt person knows what was said. The hurt person knows what happened when they were hurt. I have no choice. Well, I have a choice. I could either apologize or not apologize. And probably nine times out of ten, I look for a way to not apologize. Vulnerability is not our natural position. It requires authenticity. It requires trying to give up control of the situation. Non-apologies mean I'm still trying to take control of the situation. I'm doing damage control. I'm going to try to make you understand why I did it. And usually you're not so subtly hinting that maybe it was partly your fault too. but it's required. It's required for us as Christians to be able to reach people with that authenticity. And if we can't do it, then we need to do something about it. So I wanna take the opportunity of the new year to do something we haven't done in quite a few years, and that is to talk about our mission. To talk about what possibly we could do to open up doors to our mission in 2024. First of all, would everybody be uh, at least on board if the church said, you know what, that's what we wanna do. We wanna be better at our mission this year. Would you like to be better at our mission? I would too. And our mission, we've put it into words, we put it into at least something that uh, I, I try to put everywhere that we can so that we can at least continue to say it and at least then begin to hopefully be able to live it out. And our mission here is to see to it that no one No one misses the grace of God. It comes from Hebrews 12, verse 15. Uh, The NIV of 1984 is the only one that translates it this way. Because the word actually means lacks, that no one would lack the grace of God. And Hebrews is leaving it up to the church, is leaving it up to the church to make sure that God's grace is given to everyone, that no one that we come in contact with will walk away without a little bit more of God's grace than they had then before they ran into us. And I think that one of the reasons why we can't, one of the reasons why we're ineffective at it is that the vulnerability that's required to give someone else grace, we have to experience with God first. And when we look at witness beyond that, if we look at mission beyond that, then we're not actually authentic with them. What people need is an authentic reaching out of grace. It, it requires a few things. And there's some steps to it. So let's look at step one. Let's look at God's people. Let's look at us, what we are supposed to be. I want to ask you a quick quiz. Who did Jesus censure? Thieves and prostitutes or people who ate cheese? (laughs) Who he censured were those who were judgmental and unaccepting of other people because they ate cheese. The harshest words of Jesus were for who? The sinner or for the church? It was for the church. The religious ones for failing to show the mercy of God. The problem with just being right is that it's possible to be right and not be merciful. The church of Jesus' day, those who claimed to believe in the coming of the Messiah was now looking at the Messiah and did not recognize him at all because they're not approaching God with this uh, vulnerability that I'm talking about, this authenticity that I'm talking about. See, and this is what angers God, because when you do it as a believer, you're representing him. Jeremiah, who is a pre-exilic prophet, in other words, his entire ministry was to tell Israel that the captivity was coming, and why? And one of the sections is, is that God says, you know what, I'm to the point to where I'm not even doing this for you anymore. I'm doing it for my name. Because the problem is, the things you've been doing in my name, no one is going to be able to recognize me when I come to them. So I'm doing this for my name. See, salvation only comes to people who would end up knowing God's name. See, I think that's the problem, is that Israel didn't quite realize or didn't quite understand, they didn't know God's name. So when God's name showed up incarnate in Jesus Christ, not only did they not recognize him, they labeled him as the devil. The only time, there's only one time in the entire Bible where the writer actually says that Jesus was angry. There's only one time that the writer actually attributes anger to Jesus. Do you know where it is? We say it's at the temple, turning over the money changers, right? Turning over the the tables and, and freeing all the sacrifices. He appears angry there, doesn't he? But the writer doesn't say that he was. There's only one time that the writer actually says that he was angry. And it's found in Mark chapter three. Jesus enters the synagogue at Capernaum and a man was there who had a what? He had a withered hand. In other words, he, it's been this way for a very long time. This is a chronic problem, not an acute problem, if you will. It's not a broken arm that just happened yesterday. He, it's withered, it's atrophied, if you will. It's been this way for a long, long time. And they watched him, speaking of Jesus, they watched him to see whether he would cure them on the Sabbath so that they might what? So that they might accuse him. Now I'm speculating, okay? I'm speculating, but I know that these good religious leaders Probably, up until that day, never even looked at the man with the withered hand, and I bet you, I will bet you, that he wasn't even allowed in the synagogue. See, because by the time synagogue worship rolls around, the, the religious leaders had adopted the, uh, the theology of ritual impurity, and they begin to apply it to synagogue worship, when actually it's only meant for temple worship talking about those who come in the presence of God need to be pure. They can't have any defects about them. They had switched that theology and began to apply it to people. So since this was a a problem, a chronic problem, obviously you've done something to offend God that this would be with you, so you don't belong here. The one time that they allow him at least to come up and sit with everyone else is when they wanna catch Jesus in some sort of slip-up. So they put the man with the withered hand in front of Jesus like it's bait. what What I think is impressive is that even though they believe, maybe not by Mark chapter three, but even though that uh, they're beginning to believe that he's a heretic at least, maybe uh, not quite yet that he's the devil himself, they have been impressed that he seems to not be able to help himself when it comes to healing people. (laughs) The the man with the withered hand is kind of like catnip to a cat, here you go. We know he's not gonna be able to resist this. And of course he couldn't but it's what Mark says about him. He said to the man who had the withered hand to what? Come forward. He's never been allowed to come forward before. Like I said, if he's even allowed in the synagogue, he's sitting in the back on the floor. But Jesus says, come forward. And then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? And they were what? They were silent, okay? Did they know the answer to the question? You bet they knew the answer to the question. The answer, hands down, in the Talmud, and has been for years, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, they knew that. And they knew he's about to heal him, and they know in the back of their heads that he actually is adhering to the law. But they said, you know what? It also can be construed that healing could be work. And maybe he shouldn't be doing the work. So that's what they were trying to catch him at. And Jesus looked around at them with what? It's the only time anger is ever attributed to Jesus. He was grieved at their what? This guy has been in your presence for at least 20 years. And today you finally pay attention to him and he's nothing but an object lesson to you. He always has been an object lesson to you. He's been somebody that you can feel good about. I don't have a withered hand, so God must like me better than you. God loves me, this I know, because my hand is not as withered as yours. He likes me better. And since I only see you in the synagogue on Sabbath, I follow the Sabbath laws to the letter, I obey the Sabbath laws, I'm not gonna do anything about healing you because that's work. And then they feel good walking home, patting themselves on the back that they worshiped God today. You guys have got no compassion. Your theology of sin and human suffering has rendered you useless when it comes to compassion. All you can think about is whether or not he's as big a sinner as you are or you're as big a sinner as he is. I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like that sinner with the withered hand back there. The Pharisee praying next to the tax collector has absolutely no mercy whatsoever. He uses him as a prop. Here, they're being used as as an object lesson in theology. By the way, the man born blind in John chapter nine was the same. He was just an object lesson. Master, who sinned that this man was born blind? His mom and dad or him? Just an object lesson. Just a theological talking point. Know what? no heart, no mercy. And as he points that out to him, he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was what? It's amazing. It's amazing that he was talking to them about their hardness of heart. And it says that when he stretched it out, it was already restored. We don't know when he did it. He probably did it before the man even came forward. But he needed to make a point See, when you do it in the synagogue, when you do it as as a believer, you're now carrying God's reputation with you. You're not just telling people how you feel about them, but you're telling people how God feels about them. And either we are going to uh, hold up God's name when we treat other people, or we're not. And when we're not, we're gonna have some pretty angry prophets be talking to us about this. their own agenda was to be right. That's their agenda in worshiping God. That's what attracts them to the message is that I wanna be right. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as we retain our what? As long as we retain our mercy. And I'll go one step further as to say, you know what? Being merciful is being right. You're not just obeying the word when you're merciful, you're fulfilling the word. There's a huge difference between the two. When you love and have mercy, especially for those who have no voice, who have no uh, opportunity, especially for those who are despised by everyone else, when you love and have mercy on your enemy, you are fulfilling the word of God. You're not just obeying it. It's how we see people. How should we see people? Our scripture reading says this, it says when the Pharisees saw this, and when they, when they say when they saw this, Jesus is in the house, he's in Matthew's house, and all of Matthew's tax collecting friends are there. You know what, Matthew found forgiveness in from this man who walked forward, found forgiveness for betraying his people. Matthew has lived this whole life of betrayal, of betraying his people. He has been an outcast since he became a tax collector. And this rabbi just walked up to me and invited me into his shul, invited me into his school. That invitation moved Matthew. And what Matthew decided to do was to introduce his friends to Jesus. That's what's happening inside the house. It's a good thing happened to me today, guys. Come meet the guy who was the good thing. Tax collectors won't even enter the house. I mean, the uh, Pharisees won't even enter the house. Why? They'd become unclean if they did. It's a tax collector's house. There's Romans in there. I'm not even allowed to stand under the porch or I would become unclean. So they're outside. Notice who else is outside though? The rest of the disciples. They don't get it yet either. Yet Jesus allows them to accept it at their own pace. I bet you when he said and invited the tax collector, every other disciple that he had already called said, well, uh, you know what, I gotta reconsider whether or not I'm gonna follow because he just called that dude, the tax collector, the worst sinner to, to actually mix with us The disciples aren't even in the house yet. They're not Matthew's friends. But I love that Jesus says, all right, we'll still stay together and we're going to grow to love one another. For right now? Okay, I get it. I get it. So since the Pharisees won't go in and the disciples won't go in, the Pharisees can only talk to the disciples. Which, by the way, something even a little more underhanded is going on here. See, because the law doesn't allow you to stone a heretic just for being a heretic. The law doesn't allow you to execute somebody for being a heretic. You have to attract other people and get them to follow this other God that you're preaching about. It's also why they continue to talk to the disciples because I know he's a heretic from what he does. I know he's a heretic from what he says. He doesn't follow the law. He's not a Sabbath keeper. He's a Sabbath breaker. I know who he is. But what they have to prove in order to be able to execute him for that is that he influenced other people to follow them. So there's something even more underhanded going on when the leaders decide to talk to the disciples and not talk to Jesus. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The disciples aren't gonna be able to give him an answer. Jesus hears it inside. And I just see him maybe get up from the table, maybe just yell over his shoulder out the door. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Only those who are what? Only those who are sick. I'm not sure that we've ever sat with this and weighed what he's actually saying. Who are the only people that will be saved? Who are the only people that will be healed? Only the sick. The only people that can be saved are the lost. See, if you if you were to ask some somebody self-righteous who had been there for a long time, ask a self-righteous Pharisee, who is it that's going to be in the kingdom? What they would answer is all of those who walk in God's ways. Jesus said, no, you're wrong. The only people that will be in the kingdom are the people that need the kingdom. The only people that will be saved are the lost. The only people who need a physician are those who are what? How many have ever walked into a doctor's office saying, hey, I feel great today? What would a doctor do? Five years ago, five years ago was the last time or the first time that I ever had one of these attacks with my back, okay? And it happened just before we went to Israel. Now, of course, it wasn't as severe, and and medication and and stretching and, and stuff like that helped. And on the trip to Israel, it helped that my best friend was there because he's a physical therapist. And I told him what was going on, and he couldn't wait to get his hands on me. But, you know, it, it was still medication. I still needed it every 12 hours. Otherwise, I could feel it. There was one time that that I didn't make it through the day. I didn't make it. We were we had one more sight to see. We had one more hill to climb. And he had to lay me down and, and turn me into a pretzel before I could get up there. But anyway, 10 days in Israel walking up to. And when you go on a trip, to, when you go on a tour of Israel, uh, you walk 10 to 12 miles a day. And that's what I did. Every day. And when I came back, my doctor had referred me to the pain clinic. And my my appointment was five days away from the time that I came back. About the third day, my pain completely went away. Just went completely away. As a matter of fact, I ran that time for only the second time since the entire attack happened. I ran that day, but I kept the appointment. I kept the appointment. I went in, I was introduced to the pain management doctor. He says, so how's your pain today? I said, it doesn't exist. He said, you're kidding. I said, no. He goes, well, Greg, this is a pain management clinic. I've got nothing for you if you're not in pain. See, Jesus has nothing for us if we don't need him. And who needs him? All of us. But we can only be, uh, feel that need if we feel it ourselves. If we put ourselves at the starting point of where we're supposed to be when it comes to mission, and that is how we view other people. And what we have to do is we have to view other people as fellow lost people, as fellow sinners. And the problem with being in the church for a while, we don't look at people that way anymore. We look at people who are wrong while we are what? And we turn mission then into pointing out to people how wrong they are, hoping that they'll wanna be right. It hit me in prayer meeting uh, when I said is that self-righteous people thrive in a church whose mission is to point out how wrong other people are and how right they are. Self-righteous people thrive in that church because it's the only church that feeds them if they continue to be self-righteous and you're in a church that decides that you're gonna look at people and and, and give grace to them as it was given to us, the self-righteous leave because it doesn't feed them anymore. When you begin to open the doors to the kingdom as Jesus did, the people who only feel that they're right now see everything going wrong. So they're gonna go to another church that's gonna help them feel right again. So Jesus is saying, you can't be saved unless you're what? Unless you're lost, you can't be sick, you can't be uh, healed unless you're what? Unless you're sick. You can't be given riches unless you're poor. You can't be given comfort unless you mourn. Blessed are they who are poor, who are mourning, who are sick who are meek. You can't be given the kingdom unless you're meek. I'm not sure that we've ever sat with the weight of what he's actually saying. We don't naturally view any, uh, any others as fellow sinners anymore. And since we don't, he says, I wish you then would go and learn what this means. You guys are such good Bible students. Some of the guys that I'm talking to right now have, a, have the entire Old Testament memorized. Then you know what Hosea 6, six says. And you think you know what it means. I wish you would go and learn what it means. It means, he says, I desire mercy, not What? not sacrifice, for I've come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. The only people that could receive Christ's righteousness are who? The unrighteous. Jesus said, I only came for the lost. The mercy that is translated here in in, in Greek is actually from the Hebrew word chesed from the Hebrew of Hosea. It means literally steadfast love. That's the, that's the uh, uh, translation that I like the most. You know the concept of agape in, in, in Greek? It's supreme love, it's, it's unconditional love, it's love that some can only attribute to God. This is the Hebrew version of it, chesed. Steadfast love, love that will not go away, love that is uh, not conditional. And what he's saying is, is that you've let the religious duty of the temple and sacrifice get in the way of your mercy. You're more concerned about being right than being merciful. And by the way, to offer your sacrifice at the temple, you had to go through the three courtyards. And the outside courtyard was for the court of the Gentiles. And that's the court where everybody gathered who was not holy or did not uh, belong as holy. And depending on what gate you went in, you could go by the pool of Bethesda and you stepped over widows and orphans and sick people, people with withered hands, people with withered legs in order to take your sacrifice. He has a serious problem with that. And he sent prophets to Israel for hundreds of years to tell them that. What God has desired from Hosea to Jesus is steadfast love, is chesed. In Hosea's day, Israel's demonstrated that they can do what is commanded, but they can't be merciful. Nor are they committed to God because they love him and not out of duty in order to be right. Hosea describes God's relationship with Israel as one of marital love. The book of Hosea begins with him telling Hosea to go find a wife. This is all about marital love. It's all about what a marriage is supposed to be. Not just a marriage, but there are closest, most intimate relationships. To be married is not just to act right, but to feel for each other. Not just legal obligations, but inner attitudes. If all I ever did for the past 40 years is pull out my wedding vows and read them to Nellie every day and not go beyond that, we don't really have a marriage. Although, as silent as I can be sometimes, I think she wished I would do that just to know that I can still talk. Love you, babe. It's a hateful thing. Obedience is a duty without mercy. It always has been. Book of Amos goes this way. I hate, I despise your what? Festivals. See, I can go back and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. All these festivals you told us to go to, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, is all the pilgrimage festivals. I follow them to the letter. You told me to do so. He says, no, I despise them. But you you wrote them down. They're right here. I despise them. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings. Again, where do you find that? In the law. Specifically told to bring them in the law. Told what days to bring them. Told when to bring them. Told how to bring them. Told how to pick them. I want what? I won't accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. He said, you're patting yourself on the back because you're offering me your fatted animals, your best animals, exactly what the law says. You're patting yourself on the back. I won't even look at them. Take away from me the noise of your song. See, now, now it's starting to hit home. See, we could look at the others and say, man, he's really chewing out those old Jewish people. He's really chewing them out, not me, but this one brings it home. What did we just do? (laughs) Okay. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. What's he looking for then? If you're not looking for obedience to what you told us in the Bible, obedience to what you told us in the word, then what are you looking for? If you now you're going to uh, undo all of that. He says, but let justice what? Let justice, let righteousness roll like waters, like an ever flowing stream. That's the worship that I want from you. Where's your mercy? Where's your seeking of justice? Where are you standing up for those who are actually being trampled by the law? Two people, two people that the law does not provide for, absolutely does not provide for in all the scripture, widows and orphans. And they're treating him that way. They're looking at the widows and the orphans and saying, you know what, if he told us here that we were supposed to do something about you, we would do it. But the law provides for them none at all. And you know why I think that the law provides for them none at all? It's because God at least wanted them to figure out. It's because I want you to do it. I want you to decide that mercy is the fulfillment of the law. You should be able to do that, especially when you're looking a starving widow and orphan in the face. But they couldn't because the law didn't say that they had to. Abraham Heschel in his book, The Prophets, writing on this verse in Hosea, he says, these prophets not only stress the primacy of morality over sacrifice, but even proclaim that the worth of worship, far from being absolute, is contingent upon moral living. Our worship is only worthy if we decide we're going to live morally, if we're gonna treat other people as God has treated us. Questioning man's right, actually he says this, it's contingent upon moral living. And when immorality prevails, worship is detestable. He told Amos, I hate your assemblies. Questioning man's right to worship through offerings and songs, they maintain that the primary way of serving God is through love, justice, and righteousness. They did, however, claim the deeds of injustice, both vidiate sacrifice and prayer. They make prayer and sacrifice null and void. Men may not drown the cries of the oppressed with the noise of hymns, nor buy off the Lord with increased offerings. The prophets disparaged the cult or the sacrificial system when it became a substitute for righteousness. The only safe environment in the body of Christ is a merciful one. When we show mercy, we fulfilled our worship. We've made it right when we walk around with merciful hearts, when we love as we have been loved, when we forgive as we have been forgiven. Has the church pulled this off? How do we know whether or not we have? I've been fascinated and horrified by this book. It's an older book now, okay? It's an older book. It's called Unchristian. It's been done by Dave Kinneman and Gabe Lyons. At the time, they were the head of Barna Research. And I quote Barna a lot, a lot of people do. Barna is the largest data gathering organization for the Christian church in North America, hands down. They have more polls and more data about the church that they've ever done. This book is the result of the largest poll that they ever took on the uh, image, if you will, the image of Christianity in North America. Years and years in research, thousands and thousands of people in the church and outside the church interviewed to to give us this book, how we're perceived and how we believe that we're perceived. And they did it because, as with everybody back in the early 2000s, there's one specific group of people that we have been concerned with, or at least we say that we're concerned with. And who is it? Young people. In the Adventist church, we don't even uh, bother to learn uh, what they are called. Millennials, Gen Z, you know. We just say young people. When I came to the church, I was referred to as a young person. I went to adults too. I went to uh, young adults, you know. Because for years, we've been wondering what is happening to who? Our young people because we know that starting all the way back in 1990, our young people begin to tell the church what? <clears throat> we had more kids leaving after they graduated academy than ever. And by the way, has it gotten better? No. It's gotten worse. In fact, Varna did a poll for us just two years ago and it's gotten even worse. Let me uh, share just a a little bit here. Uh, See if you can relate to this experience. The doorbell rings. You're not expecting anyone. You quickly shuffle through the house, glancing at the mirror in the hallway to make sure you're halfway presentable. You crack the door open. You glimpse two young men in white shirts and black ties. And a little black name tag right here. You hardly have to check for the other visual clues. But as you do, they confirm your suspicion, backpacks, name tags. Each one of them has a piece of literature in their hand. We've all experienced that, right? We've all experienced that. And they smile at you. You know what's coming before they say a word. They want to introduce you to another testament. They want to win your spiritual allegiance, don't they? See, we think it's ridiculous. We think it's absolutely ridiculous. Let me ask you this. (laughs) Why do we expect any different? Let 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 me ask those of you who have been in the church a long, long time. Do you think that there's any way that anybody could present an argument to you that would get you to walk away from your Adventism? Any argument by any adult, somebody that knocked on your door, could they do it? Would they accomplish it with you? Probably not, right? But we expect it to happen with the adults that we evangelize. See, and the point is, it says, our research among outsiders, among those who are on the outside of the church, shows that Christians have a a reputation similar to these door-to-door evangelists. When it comes to matters of faith, young outsiders feel they know what Christians want before any words are uttered. Although young people generally resonate with spiritual topics, they don't like feeling cornered into conversations about faith. They're a generation who is reared in a marketing-drenched world and quick to sniff out what they believe are the underlying motivations and superficialities. They already think they know what's coming when a Christian approaches them. They're skeptical. Do they have a right to be? Does anybody on the outside, when a Christian approaches them about joining a church, do they have a right to be skeptical? Sure. What's the church shown them in the past 40 years? I go back 40, Yeah, not quite, 38. It's an evangelistic number, I round up all the time. Realize that this skepticism has both positive and negative implications. One of the favorable outcomes is that young people are reluctant to be salesperson pushy about their faith and are highly sensitized to what other people think and feel. But this also means that these young Christians are less likely than older adults to feel compelled to share their faith. It's also interesting to know that young people are less likely to embrace the once saved, always saved perspective that is a commitment to Christ permanently and alter one's destiny. That that's all gonna happen in this encounter right here on your porch. So the book was about how others perceive us. So consider this, how it affects young people outside the faith. Young outsiders generally do not get the impression that Christians have good intentions when it comes to trying to convert them. Most reject the idea that Christians show genuine interest in them as individuals. This was one of the largest gaps in our research. Most Christians are convinced their efforts come across as genuine, but most outsiders say it doesn't. When it comes to matters of faith, young outsiders are skeptical of the Jesus shtick, they say. This is a key finding of our research. Only one-third of young outsiders believe that Christians genuinely care about them. 34% of young outsiders believe that we genuinely care about them. And yet, 64% of us believe that we do and that we show it. In asking how Christians come across to people, we interviewed Stephen, 34-year-old who moved from New York to Phoenix. During the interview, he described his initial excitement when he met a peer in an unfamiliar city. A young guy approached me in a subway station, friendly, full of questions, interested in talking. He seemed really nice. I couldn't believe a New Yorker was being so, well, nice. We exchanged numbers, said we'd hang out sometime. Next time I heard from him, he invited me to a Bible study. When I told him, no thanks, I really wasn't there. I never heard from him again. So let me get this straight. Most Christians believe they come across as genuine and caring, but only a third of those outside who we, we claim we're reaching believe that they genuinely care about them. Not, we need to be careful. I know what we're thinking. They're thinking, they just don't get it. They haven't heard the Adventist message. Our research shows no better. They get all their information from crooked televangelists and scandals. They haven't been in here. Let me, I want you to consider this then when we're talking about this, these young Christians. By the way, it's ages 16 to 29, the, the ones that everybody is gunning for. And don't, don't you think that they all realized, 16 to 29-year-olds, that every church in the nation was gunning for them? Consider this. Among young Christians, 16 to 29, four out of five have gone to a Christian church at some time in their life. Most attended more than three months Two, in exploring church and the American teenager, they found that the vast majority have spent their entire teen years in a Christian congregation. Most teenagers enter adulthood considering themselves Christian, and within a decade, they've left the church. It sounds just like our church. So the most sobering thought is, is that when we're trying to reach these 16 to 29-year-olds, they're not unchurched, they're de-churched. In other words, they've tried the church and it isn't for them. Why? Because it isn't genuine and it isn't caring. Or even worse, they may have been hurt completely in it. They may have never been accepted for who they were. Proverbs says this, an offended friend is harder to win back than what? A fortified city. Arguments separate friends like gates locked with bars. Once you offend somebody, what's your chance of getting them back? That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a group of people who were offended by the church because they haven't been genuine. And here we are also trying to give them something that will come across as not genuine. Invite somebody for pizza rather than a Bible study. We knock on doors trying to give people Bible studies. We're told by, by uh, our publications and by our media that there are people out there hungry for Bible study. I don't know what world they're living in. You know, we knock on the door and we say, I'm from your local church. You know, we, uh, we'd be happy to study the Bible with you. Well, no, that's not for me. Okay, okay, well, we, we don't want to bug you. We're not going to force you. All right, but here's our card, here's our number. And they shut the door and turn around and look, and they wonder where their next meal is coming from. Philip Yancey in his book, um, I forgot the name of the book now. It'll come to me, one of his books. He says here, a short story by the Spanish writer Carmen Corda tells of a young woman who gives birth to a blind son. I don't want my child to know that he's blind, she informs family and neighbors, forbidding anyone to use telltale words such as light, color, and sight. The boy grows up unaware of his disability until one day a strange girl jumps over the fence of the garden and spoils everything by using all the forbidden words in her first sentence. His world shatters in the face of this unimagined new reality. In modern times, he says, Christians resemble the strange girl who brings a message from the outside. To a skeptical audience, they bring rumors of another world beyond the fence. That's the name of the book, Rumors of Another World, okay. An afterlife beyond death. A loving God who is somehow working out his will in the chaotic history of this planet as in Carmen Corda's story, the news may not be welcome. We forget that what is to us an extension of sight is to the rest of the world a peculiar and arrogant blindness. Again, is it me? Or does the prophet tell us? Once we've offended him, what do we do now? You have no choice, do you? You don't have any choice except to do what? To apologize, to be vulnerable on whatever level that we need to. Are there things that the church needs to corporately apologize for? Probably, I don't have any control over that. In fact, I don't have any control over this congregation. I have control of where I'm standing right here. And if I believed that the congregation needed to apologize to somebody, I'd let you know. But I've got plenty of apologies to make. You know, some that I'll never get back. So, what do they want? They want genuine caring. Not just caring to convert somebody, but to care for somebody. Knowing deep in our heart that a person has inherent worth because he or she is a person, not because they're potential converts. We need to understand that God loves those people whether or not they will ever make a decision to follow him or not. And we have to accept that. You don't like how that sounds? It's because we need to care and sometimes we don't know where the care is. Sometimes it just isn't there. And what do we do? We work harder to cover it up. We do more holy things to cover it up when actually we should just be on our knees and say, Lord, I just don't care. I don't care about people right now. Where else am I gonna go with that? What else should I say to God about that? And then when I do, you know what he says? I know that, Greg. I know that. Let's sit here, let's talk a while. I don't want you to miss my grace because eventually you're gonna care. You keep walking with me and you're gonna care eventually. But for right now, let's just be. I don't know whether or not Francis of Assisi has said this but we've attributed it to him. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. I'm not sure that it's attributed to him. I don't need CC to have said it to say that that's a pretty good model to live by. But it's a wonderful thing that these generations, these young people are doing for us. You know why? Because they're pointing out our hypocrisy and they're making us deal with it. I always pictured uh, Gen uh, X all the way through uh, Millennials and Z have me by the lapel saying, you're not going to fool me with programs anymore. You're not going to fool me with clever literature or or, or programs. I'll come to them. I'll come to them. But I know what Jesus told you. I'm going to make you love me. And once you do, I'm on board. There are two things that a young person looks for in a church they will ask you this, two things that this research boiled down to. Number one, can I meet God in your church? Will I meet God if I come to worship you today? Will I sing to him? Will I hear about him? Will I hear other people pray to him? Will I meet God? And if the answer is yes, the next question is, will you do the same for my friend? And sometimes we're not prepared for the friend. Sometimes we're not prepared for that person, for what they may look like, for what they may uh, appear to be, for what group they may belong to. But if we can't do it for their friend, guess what happens to that person? I'm gonna go find a church that'll do it for my friend too. My last church, we used to look at uh, evangelism as throwing a rock into a pond. We want to make ripples. We want to make ripples uh, where we are. In other words, to stir up the pond. Uh, But we got to quit doing that. We got to quit just throwing our Bibles in the pond because it makes a splash and then it sinks. But also as it goes down, apparently we're also offending people and we're offending them because we're offering them the word and not the flesh covering that goes with it. You and I are carriers of the gospel. The Bible isn't, we have to walk and talk as God walked and talked with us and not throw the Bible at somebody. You know why? Because those people are people. They're not projects, they're not targets, and they're not problems. I've heard people referred to in our own literature with those three words. We're projecting generation X. We're, we're targeting uh, the 16 to 29 year olds. We need to know uh, about uh, how we're going to handle this sexuality problem. I've seen us refer to outsiders in all three ways and leave out the most important P, they're people. And they're worth. God's love and grace, whether or not they ever, ever take a step in God's direction. We need to care about them and not whether or not they'll come to church. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. God's people who are about his mission have removed the word from the page and they've put it on their hearts. They live it. They don't need perfect saints going around performing perfect deeds and telling them that they need to be perfect. They need to know that they're not alone. They need to see our pain, our flaws. We need to be accountable for that. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am foremost. Paul reminded himself of what a sinner he was before he ever approached another person. If nothing else, we'll deal with each other as fellow sinners. transparency, to be transparent that we're fellow sinners, that we have flaws and that we have pain and we have loneliness. We're afraid that if we tell people about that, that we're afraid that that they're gonna look at us and say, well, they're not really worshipers of God then because worshipers of God don't feel that way. Worshipers of God are always happy. Worshipers of God are never alone. And we end up trying to hide who we really are from people who need to know that we really are just like them. Am I share my pain with you rather than share you my knowledge of Scripture. Transparency will lead to that accountability. It'll give us a humility. So one thing we need to do is the church needs to be more transparent. We need to have a place where we all can be transparent. Maybe this year will be the year that we can provide, begin to provide those places. We begin to look at outreach at how we see other people and honesty that they can be helped as long as I recognize that I needed the help. We keep hearing Jesus' voice throughout the prophets to God's people. What me what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat and fed of beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, or of lambs, or of goats. When You come to appear before me who asked this from your hand. Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation. I can't endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals, my soul hates. They've become a burden. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because their hands are full of what? They're full of blood. We offend people by not offering the grace that they've offered us and only offering a strict obedience by being more perfect than they are. We have blood on our hands. We're the ones that offended them. So God says, do something about it. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to be to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now, let's argue this out. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they become like wool. Most of us aren't able to authentically offer this to somebody else because we haven't experienced it ourselves. We don't get that we can be forgiven no matter what our sin was. Even if we offended somebody, even if we don't care about somebody, even if we, uh, no matter how much we drum it up, we just can't give any empathy or sympathy. We don't believe that those kinds of sins can be forgiven. So we stay away from him. He says, no, let's argue about that. (laughs) The argument is whether or not we believe we can be forgiven, period. You know, and once we do, once we accept that and we accept his perfect righteousness and become this way, that's step one then in making sure that nobody else ever misses the grace of God. So like I said, it comes from here. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Asking forgiveness, apologizing, don't let the root go, do it now. Do it in every relationship that we have. If the church needs to, let's do it. Don't let any bitter root arise. I like how the New Living Translation puts it. It says, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. That's our mission. That's who we are. So I'm just asking for our eyes to open just a little. I'm asking forgiveness for making you sit this long. Thank you for the extra time. What is 2024 going to bring us in trying to live that out? We want to be a place where no one misses. I think that, I think that we can accomplish it if we get them in the doors. I think we're, we're pretty good once they're in the doors. Maybe 2024 means that we've got to be able to do that before they get to the doors. Our neighbors, our friends, the people in line in front of you, the people waiting on you. There's a quote by Ellen White. I butcher it all the time. But thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, she says, there are people to whom life is just hard. It's just hard. She describes them as being not able to see any light, not able to see beyond what's happening right now. She says this, a look, a well-timed look of affection, just a look, a well-placed word of encouragement, a strategic hand on the shoulder would be to some as a cold water to be for somebody who's dying of thirst in a desert not a 28 point bible study not figuring out daniel 8:14 just a look And the reason I believe she has to write that in Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing is because we've looked past that. We don't see that as salvific. We don't see that as evangelism. But she's saying it's the only evangelism there is. A look, a word. I always wondered uh, if I get to the kingdom and I let's let's say I, I get lucky and I live to be a hundred, a hundred years of living out this mission, a hundred years of, of, of living all this out and I get to the kingdom and we're reviewing my life as we know that we always do. And I get there and I realize God says, you know what? hundred years, I had you on the planet for this one day. And they show me the one day that I smiled and said, thank you to my barista at Starbucks. He said, that was the only reason to have you on the planet, Greg. And by the way, we do that because sometimes the Starbucks barista or anybody who we we did that are never, ever going to be saved. See, but we care for them as people right now, regardless of the next step that they're going to take, towards God or away from God. The only thing that I can guarantee is that if they're in your life, then God put them there. They're right there. And we have opportunities. A look of affection, a well placed word of encouragement. She also said, what it goes with it, but it isn't there in Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing. But she said, the greatest, greatest argument for the gospel is a gentle Christian. A gentle Christian. 2024. It's all in front of us, which is cool, isn't it? It's neat. And again, I'm thankful that I get to face it with you. Happy Sabbath, everybody.